you are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Dan Meitschek, I help companies connect with the best tech talent, and I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tim, Anders, Craig and Eva to discuss leadership, how to get the best out of your team. So before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Eva, do you want to kick us off? Of course. (laughs) Uh, Eva Wollschläger is my name and I'm from Sweden and I work at Teto Every as a lead product manager and uh, I'm overall responsible for the business to business e-invoicing and some other minor things within payment and so forth. Fantastic and then we'll move on to you next Craig. Yeah, Hi everyone, Craig Neal, uh, also based in Sweden, uh, working currently for Nordea, uh, the leading Nordic bank. Uh, so I'm a product and development lead. Uh, I'm working on different change initiatives currently within group finance. Uh, working within product management and overall change leadership, uh, around 15 years experience within financial services and people leadership. Great, and then we'll move on to you next, Anders. Hi, uh, my name is Anders Sandal. Uh, I'm also located in Sweden. Um, I am a CTO at uh, CSUN Public Safety. I have some uh, 25 years of experience in leadership positions, uh, and before that I was um, software developer and uh, solution architect. And um, we're working primarily with emergency response uh, solutions for call centers. Uh, So uh, SOS uh, Alarm is one of our biggest customers that pretty much everybody in Sweden knows about, or rather do not want to know about, because if you have a reason to to call them, then you're in an emergency situation. So yeah, that's me. Great. And last but not least, Tim. Hi, I'm uh, yeah, I'm Tim Self. I'm also based in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, transplant from Silicon Valley some 15 years ago. Uh, I recently have left uh, Reason Studios as the CPO there and I'm on a bit of a sabbatical as I'm transitioning into an encore career where I can be more consultative towards products and product people. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. So now that we've established a little bit more context about each of you, we'll move on to the topic in focus. So you all have a question or subtopic on leadership, how to get the best out of your team. So as usual, again, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. And each of you will then be given the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So we'll kick off with Anders' question. Do you want to start us off? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Daniel. Uh, yeah, my question is really, uh, how do you uh, manage to uh, uh, organize your team structure to meet uh, the uh, desired system architecture? Uh, and this is something I've been working with for, for a long time. And um, obviously, if you start, uh, you have a software development team. I'm primarily in, in software. So uh, you have a team, they have a mission, uh, and they uh, are responsible to develop uh, some products and uh, and to do it well. 
So uh, the thing is that you're not alone. So you have to uh, make sure that you collaborate with the other uh, parts of the uh, of the system. Uh, and and this is how this uh, system architecture is actually uh, um, very closely connected with the way you organize your your teams. So um, if you look at the uh, software architecture, you have to uh, develop your system in, in, in a certain architecture. Uh, and, and, and typically, if you look at uh, systems out there, uh, then you can pretty much uh, also guess uh, the setup of the organization that, that developed this, this uh, system, uh, because it's a very um, um, uh, close uh, relationship between the organization and how the organization is interacting and, and the software architecture. Uh, and this is something that uh, a guy called Conway uh, found out, and, and he, he named the law after himself, so that's called Conway's law. Uh, and, and what this actually does, it tells us about the, the, the organization structure and the actual communication path are actually preserved in, in the resulting architecture uh, of the system built. So, so and that is, I've experienced that myself many times. So how do you go about then? Because you have a, a certain number of people, you need to, to distribute them uh, over a number of teams, and then you have a system architecture. So then the trick is actually to turn it the other way around. So start with the architecture. So you outline your, your desired software architecture, and then you, uh, you set up your organization and distribute your organization accordingly in, instead. And this is also something that has a name, and it's called reverse Conway, Conway maneuver. Uh, and, and this means that you design the, uh, the teams to match the desired software system architecture instead. Uh, and, and this is this is actually it's not that that easy in practice, uh, but I've tried it uh, several times, and it's actually a, a pretty good way of organizing your your uh, teams, because you have also a common uh, architecture that is intuitive, and and uh, it actually helps the the team to to interact. Uh, so that's the the first thing. The second thing is that that you always have to have the, the team focus. Uh, and, and, and the team is sort of the, the key in this, and it's very important that the, 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 the software is owned by the, the team. Uh, and then if you, if you look at this in a, in a broader context, so how do, how do you uh, make sure that you get an efficiency from your organization, even though you have mapped the organization on the desired software architecture? Uh, yeah, then you have to look at the interfaces. Uh, so the interfaces are extremely important in this, and, and they are actually uh, um, uh, both covering the way the teams interact, but also how the different modules interact. Because if you have, match, if you have managed now to, to uh, um, distribute the software in such a way that the modules are matching the, the teams, then you also have the, the interfaces uh, exactly where the modules are interfacing, as well as the teams. Uh, and then there is a very, it, it's an important concept that, that, that is called X as a service, uh, which is very much like uh, the software as a service or platform as a service, the same concept that, that you, instead of collaborating very tightly between the different teams, you actually define the interfaces between the teams. Uh, thereby, they can work uh, much more independently, uh, and you can also uh, you, you see a, a better responsibility split. So it's it actually helps the whole organization to move faster and to be to be more efficient. 
Um, also, it's important not to overload the team. So, I mean, it, it, you always have to be on top of this cognitive load on, uh, on the teams. And if you see that there is a high um, load on, on a team, you have to do a team split. And now if you manage to distribute the modules over the teams, then that means also a module split. So if you follow that sort of concept, you split a module in two and then you create an interface in between and thereby you have two teams uh, interacting in the same way. Uh, and then, of course, as a manager, you have to be very, very careful in, in uh, also giving the team the possibility to be accountable because you want the team to be accountable, of course, because they own the software. You want them to take care of, you know, everything has to be, to, to be done with this, this module and in order to evolve it. Uh, but the, it, the management or the leadership as, uh, actually has to be very, very careful in making sure that they have the, the possibilities to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to be accountable. And that, that is, for example, budget. So uh, in order to, to get the, 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 the team to be accountable, you have to assign a, a sufficient budget in order for them to specifically also address technical debt. Because that, that is that is an issue that is very often down prioritized when when you have customers breathing down your neck, uh, they want more features, more functionality. It's it's easy to to down prioritize the the technical debt. Some of the technical debt and, and the enablers, you just have to do it. And if you then uh, make sure that the team has the the capabilities to, to do it, uh, then will they also zoom the the, the accountability. So that's that's my experience and my uh, insights and in, in how to create efficient teams. Okay, do you want to jump in first, Craig? Yeah, thanks, uh, Anders. I mean, um, really good insights. I, I can I can um, I can sort of see a few things that we have in common as well. Um, I'm a bit curious about one thing. Um, when it comes to the uh, creating these these teams, if I understand it, to represent individual systems and then the interface between them, one thing we've been working on a lot of the bank is instead trying to build what we call cross-functional teams. So teams that are able to develop across a range of technologies, not maybe all, but at least a few technologies, and it's sort of avoiding one team per system, which tends to develop, tends to give us some issues with key person dependencies. Uh, and also it's hard to then build out the architecture if you have people who are only sort of focused on one system. I wonder if that is something that you have encountered before or any reflections on that? Absolutely. I mean, this they're not uh, exclusive or mutually exclusive, those concepts, because in, in each and every team, uh, the, the preference is to have cross-functional competence. Uh, but but it, it, Again, I mean, you need to have a certain amount of, of expertise uh, around a certain could be technology stack or domain. Uh, but then, uh, of course, I mean, you have to cover the, the, the full stack, for example, from the bottom to, to the user interface, from the back end to the front end, for example, because uh, that's how the functionality is distributed. So they're, they're not, uh, they're not um, um, at all uh, exclusive. So, I mean, they, 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 they can definitely, you know, you can, you can work with both. Okay, cool. I also echo your point around technical debt. I think uh, we've been working with Scaled Agile uh, for a number of years. 
And I think one of the things that we have struggled with uh, was the excitement of creating new cool things, you know, pushing out the need to work on performance, work on security until it becomes an, a huge incident and then it's too late. So we, we've worked a lot with actually um, principles where the, the head architect or the solution architect is the one responsible and we reserve capacity in every what we call program increment for at least some technical depth or some performance or other you know, non-functional changes which are needed to keep the you know, system or application healthy. So I think it's a hugely important concept. Graham, do you want to jump in, Tim? Yeah, I, yeah I've, I've often found, you were talking about technical debt, um, that it's also building the teams to make sure uh, you, because there are people who actually like to work on technical debt. You know, they actually like to make the machines run better and faster. And so making sure uh, you, you get your teams uh, set up right, because sometimes putting those people on the cutting edge, if you want to call it, or the new stuff, they, they, they're like, this is, you, they don't like being out on that agile, uh, you know, straw, you know, bailing wire and duct tape end. So, so I've I've often found that sometimes you assume that everybody wants to be there, and you actually find out engineers and and e and even product managers are are more comfortable in one place or another. So it's really getting you know designing the teams uh, uh, and and or or integrating the teams with that right mix of people. Uh, yeah, but because I've been in systems where with all people want to do is polish, you know, and make the machine better, and you never, and you never like, can we, can we try some new stuff now, guys? So you can end up with a team that's very different. So, yeah, but uh, that's a, it is a challenge. Technical debt is just, I, th I, I equate it to painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Being from the Bay Area, they never stop painting the Golden Gate Bridge. They go down one end and they turn around and they go back, you know, and so you, it's just you have to build it into your business uh, and into your development model. And I think uh, and making that transition, like if you've made these leaps and going back and paying, maybe technical debt's just a bad name. Maybe we shouldn't call it debt. It's just, you know, <laughs> life feeding the machine. It's a. Uh, Anyway, fantastic, and we'll finish off with you. Last but not least, Eva. <laughs> I, I get a lot of thoughts in my head, and and I'm just thinking like, um, when you are planning and and doing all of these things, is it so that, um, are you looking from both sides, both inside and outside, and from the outside and inside, um? Since I'm working uh, working in within the the product area and so forth, but I have a long long history within sales, and I still have to do quite a lot of sales. Uh, but so for me, when when I'm involved in in these kind of cases, it's like uh, when you're developing things or doing things. Who is it for? Is it for is it the customer requirements or is it like yes we want to do this and 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 ah now we feel really good that we we have done this but is it uh, uh, is it a need for the customer side or not? And, and that that's a very good question and 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 this is something that we're of course have to ask ourselves every day. Um, uh, um, uh, Craig, you you mentioned scaled agile framework, and I, I'm also certified in in in, in that. 
so I mean, if you look at the agile uh, methodology uh, on a high level, I mean, there, is, there are two different uh, uh, development objects, and there are, there are features and enablers. And, and features, uh, they have a sort of a, a direct customer value. So you can see, well, it's 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 a feature, and the, that the customer can can you know use in some way, and they see this is a value for us. Uh, whereas enablers, that's something that you don't see as a customer. You cannot you cannot uh, put a price on architecture. But if you don't have the uh, software architecture, if you don't, we talked about non-functional requirements, for example. If if you're not performant, if your system is not performant, you can't use it, even if it's beautiful. The user experience or the user interface is beautiful, but if it doesn't perform, if the if the response time is like seconds or several seconds, then then it's usable. Or not useful, so so it's it's uh, it's useless, and 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 that is that's balance. So every sprint, every increment, uh, there is a there is continuous discussion between the product. I mean, I I am CDO, but I am responsible for technology and product. So actually, I'm I I split personality. So I have to debate with myself. Okay, how much technology do we have to put in here to, to develop, develop the architecture, the enablers, how much of the technical debt do we actually have to fix? And how much features can we develop? Because the features of the, the customer is paying for indirectly, the customer is paying for everything, of course, but that's what they see. And so it's it could be some some increments, you know, we have a 4060, other increments you have 6040 or 7030 or whatever. Uh, it's but the trend, at least in my 25 years of experience here, is that you always have to fight more for the enablers uh, than for the features. Yeah, I think having a, a roadmap, you know, that is the CPO's role is having that roadmap and 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 always knowing where you're headed. Because if you're if you're if you're going for what do we need this quarter for sales, then you're gonna you're, you'll never take care of technical debt. So I think that being a leader is having that two to five year, maybe even longer roadmap. So you you know where this sits and you know, okay, we got to pull back now because we got to do new stuff or now or you know so so that uh, because if you bring that down to the team's level you end up in some really you know you'll you never get out of the fights <laughs> for that so i i agree i think that's a that is a big difference from just being a product manager to being a product leader uh, or leader of product managers yeah, I agree, and and uh, like because I have a team with uh, different people, and it's both uh, product managers and product owners, um, and I can see, of course, there are some differences between the roles and also what kind of background you have. Have you been working only on these technical stuff, or have you also have some kind of sales background? So you have had this. Um, close uh, customer inter interface and, and uh, interaction and so forth. Uh, so I, I can see because when when I create the roadmap, the overall roadmap, uh, I always want, uh, of course, the other ones to contribute. Uh, and it's like, it's really interesting to see the differences between the, the these, uh, where, where the persons have their background, if it's technical or not. Because the technical, they are, like I see it uh, quite often, they are very much in this small box and are only looking on this uh, technical stuff. Uh, but they are not really always thinking about, is this uh, a customer need? Uh, or is it for us that it's 
this is might be good to do. So so and I, I can there I can see like um, it's a balance and uh, for me um, we of course need to have like not almost not always 50 50 but that that it really needs to be a, a balance between these two as I see it. Yeah I'd like to build on what Eva just said because I think what I what I've seen is that a lot of the good ideas, uh, coming back to the leadership perspective, a lot of the good ideas come from the the technical guys, the engineers. So, one of the techniques that we use in the scaled agile approach is the um, um, is that we reserve the last iteration for innovation and planning, according to the framework. And one of the most successful ways we've done that is actually by running hackathons, saying, "Guys, you have a day or two." What are the problems you're facing out there and things? What is slowing down your work? We won't tell you what to do. You've got a day or two. Come back and tell us what you found and what you'd like to work on. It creates an amazing amount of motivation. Uh, you don't have to, all you have to do is give the space and, and give the, uh, you know, the time to do it. And then we've had so many things which we would never have uncovered, which, you know, reduce technical debt, which improve the ability to uh, deploy software faster, uh, better automated test, all from people sitting on these ideas but never having time to do them until, you know, from a leadership perspective, you actually create concrete times. At this time, you have some time to do what you, you know, whatever you like, you know, more or less, within a hackathon kind of spirit. We had amazing, you know, results from that. Just, we're, uh, just uh, uh, short. Uh, sorry, I, I just want to ask a little bit of question regarding since we're talking about this agile uh, framework and everything is uh, uh, do anybody of you have uh, started to work according to safe? Exactly. So that's uh, yes. Well, it's uh, yeah, exactly. the, the, the key framework. So yeah. yes, we've been doing it uh, for maybe five years. Oh. Because we uh, have started according to face, uh, safe. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But as always, you have to apply it to your business. So I've been in, in three or four different companies uh, applying agile, and, and they're all different. They're, they're not necessarily um, you know, bad or good or bad. It's just that you have to make sure that the, it, it works for that type of business and that type of organization, maturity, and so forth. And, and I also can imagine that there are some what's in in what's the buzzword for the moment, because at some point it was ITIL and, and then the next thing comes and now it's safe. And so, but it's almost the same. In the maybe one, one last comment for me and then I think I wrote a, a small piece on LinkedIn maybe a year or two ago because I was reading a lot of criticism of, of safe as a model. And I think I, I sort of use the, the Churchill quote that safe is the worst kind of form of software development apart from all the others. I mean, in, in large complex enterprise organizations, I haven't seen a better way to organize, you know, product and development teams. It, it has uh, it has some peculiarities and it, it is a little bit over engineered. They tend to bring in um, frameworks from different areas and call them safe. But if you kind of get to the essence of it, I think it's a it's a great framework, as you say, Anders. You also have to base it, you know, and, and adjust it to your own business. Fully agree. It's a framework, and then you have like to adjust exactly according to your own business. 
Fantastic. Um, really interesting. So we'll move on to our next point, which is Craig. I'll, uh, I'll let you have the floor. Yeah, so I would like to talk a bit around um, a sort of a way of leadership also connected to, to Agile called servant leadership, which you, you probably heard of. And I think why I think it's really interesting and important is that um, if you think about how we're used to manage people in an, in an enterprise and an organization. A lot of the methods that we use were based on sort of industrial age sort of a setup where there was often a gap in educational levels between the, the managers and the doers. And often, you know, depending on the country or the organization, often a cultural gap. So these, these management methods of command and control where the, the managers made all the decisions and then they coerced or convinced or inspired they're, the workers actually do the work. These these methods don't make sense in the modern world. I think, at least in most modern companies where we have knowledge workers, you're seeing that the educational levels of the people actually doing the work are more or less the same, sometimes better than the actual leaders, the senior leaders in the company. And culturally, we're seeing the old sort of hierarchies separating the the doers from the managers, sort of you know uh, evaporating. In many companies, adopting really really flat structures. So this idea of, of servant leadership, I think, is extremely powerful and that it gives you as the leader a way to then to empower and enable your employees to perform, you know, to the best of their, of their ability. I think I, I kind of put into two kind of two parts to it if I unpack it. So one is the mindset. So as a leader, it's a, a different mindset. And when I started, you know, practicing this some years ago, it took a little bit of getting used to. I think the mindset is in order to best achieve the organization's goals, you really just have to focus on securing that your employees have clear uh, clear goals themselves, they have the right competencies, they know the kind of big why of the company, and that they're given space and autonomy to grow. So I think it's a lot about having those beliefs and then focusing your energy as a, as a leader on actually securing that the, you know, the right environment is set up around the employees. So I think that's the kind of mindset piece. And then I think in terms of the, you know, the tools and techniques, the sort of things you do on a day-to-day -day basis, I think one of the things that we've worked a lot with, or I've, I've worked a lot with here at the bank is setting the, the right environment. So that's about, as I mentioned, having a clear why. So your job as a leader becomes a lot about setting, you know, the purpose and being very clear about the purpose and then reiterating the purpose every time. One example I heard the other day was that someone remembered from one of the planning sessions that there was a guy in a tie who got up and started talking about the business context. They didn't even remember who it was, or what the person was doing. They said the guy in the tie and they remembered and they brought that back, that context back to their planning session. I think another thing which is really, really important is, is setting again clear goals. And I could talk a bit more about that when we talk more about the goal setting. I think it's also a lot about setting the, the way of working. So having very clear ways of working and having clear roles and responsibilities. The whole idea is then to remove a lot of the complexity away from your employees and actually let them do their job. So your, your role as a, as a leader becomes more to create the, the right environment, create the right context and provide the people with the right tools. Then, you, you know, then what I have found is simply you get teams that um, I think one one good book to to look at if you haven't, or one good sort of research in this area, the guy called uh, um, David Marquet, 
who wrote an excellent book called Turn the Ship Around. He talks a lot about this, that you actually, instead of becoming a leader of followers, you become a leader of leaders. So when you're when you're, when you're not thinking or when you're sleeping away from work, your your people are also thinking about how they can improve the business, how to achieve excellence. So it's a way that we've used a lot, especially in this lean agile setup of actually getting, you know, people to really, really exceed expectations and to really, um, you know, deliver excellent results. I think another concept which is really related is this, this concept of, of empowerment, which everybody is talking about these days. And I think for me and the way we've interpreted that is it's about making faster, better decisions by bringing the decision power closer to the people actually doing the work, the ones sitting on the information. And I think what what we've done in order to do this is that uh, we have applied an approach called delegation poker. It's from a toolkit called Management 3.0. Really, really excellent tool if you haven't used it before. You effectively say, okay, dear team, let's sit down and list all the key decisions we make, all the way from, say, recruitment to uh, what features we'll develop to what things we'll release, uh, how we do testing, for example. List down all the key decisions. And then on scale from sort of dictatorship on one end where the manager makes all the decisions down to complete uh, autonomy on the other end where the, the team makes all the decisions and all the gray areas in between, you, you go through and facilitate that in order to be very clear about the key decisions, you know, what is the level of empowerment? We've seen ex extremely um, positive feedback on this approach and a lot of clarity and a lot of speed in decision making. I think those things for me really make up this whole concept of a of um, a servant leader i'm just curious to see if anyone else has any experiences or anything they would like to to add to that uh i can only i can uh, add something and i think that one word also is quite important is uh, that uh, the the other persons in the team have trust and feel trust from the leader uh, and engagement and interest and so it it leans a little bit about into my my question what I have been thinking about but but that is something that I just would like to add for the moment. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think it's it's uh, I mean this this concept of creating psychological safety where it's okay to bring up you know difficult cooperation topics, dif difficult performance topics within the team. And the leader does not overreact to that. The leader lets those discussions happen and take, and take their natural course. I think one thing I would add is that uh, this whole idea, uh, these whole ideas, if the manager uses the wrong language, if the management uses the sort of old industrial style management language of you know a project manager following up, saying, "Have you done this? Have you done that?" This whole thing just falls apart. I mean, the the language you use as a as a servant leader has to be a subtly adjusted. You have to ask more, you know, what and how questions. You have to, you know, ask more about confidence levels. So instead of saying, you know, is this possible? Say, you know, how confident are you in the plan? This is something we do as part of our PI planning. You know, everyone who's part of the planning gets to do like a, you know, how many fingers do you have in terms of confidence with this plan? And then we address it if it gets below three. You're, I think another thing which some leaders struggle with, and I have myself in, in my early days, was also showing uncertainty as a leader. You know, it, there are some cases when you, you have to say, look, guys, I see we have some major risks with this plan. Uh, you know, we, we're not getting the test data in time or um, 
you know, we had negative customer feedback to these features. You know, guys, what are we going to do? Do we need to change plans or how do we do it? I think it's also about signaling to the team it's okay to be uncertain. Uh, and in fact, it's normal to be uncertain in the, in the sort of complex world we live in. Uh, instead of asking sort of yes, no questions, you need to ask more, you know, what and how questions. Yeah, and I think also that uh, the team should also know that uh, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody is not perfect and so forth, not not even the leader. Uh, but that should also be OK to, to do these mistakes. But um, if I go to myself, there has been like occasions when if there has been some mistake, but um, I, I can take that mistake on me instead of that another person that yeah, has done it. That 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 person should own that mistake, but because it's uh, for me, I, I think it's it's important that they feel comfortable and that they feel also that the leader are together with them and working together with them. So therefore, I think it's it's quite uh, important that you also could like, hey, I will take this on me. Relax. Fully agree. And what are your thoughts, Tim? Uh, I, I mean, this is, it, it all just rings true. It's, I mean, in fact, my little topic is sort of taking this more at the micro level <laughs> even. So, so I think that uh, it, it, it's funny because it's obvious on one hand, and yet we've all kind of grown up with this idea of the leader as being, you know, Stalin-esque or something. And so uh, there's a lot of unlearning we have to do. And then the the only thing I can contribute is I've been in organizations where, there have been really strong leaders who have been very, for lack of a better term, black and white or very, you know, and, and visionary and people follow them. And then the, the company has to shift, right? And, and, and so as you bring uncertainty into the mix, you have to let people know it's okay. This isn't a weakness, this is a strength. And we're actually, this is a trust we're now giving you rather than, you know, and it's not, you're not supposed to take it on and, and run around scared. You're supposed to take this on as, oh, as an ownership kind of thing. But I have found some interesting transitions. It's particularly coming here to Sweden for me, where organizations that people are sometimes reticent to speak up and stuff. So you really have to draw them out. Um, but it, but it, it absolutely is the way to go. I mean, I, I'd say almost everybody I manage has more education than I have. And, 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 uh, and certainly, you know, their IQ is equal or above, too. So you, you have to say, OK, how can I empower these people? Um, and, 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 and so, I yeah, it's just it, it seems super it seems super obvious, you know, um, but it's but it's also super hard to, you know, to find yourself because you want to have that vision and that clarity and you want to have that, this is going to happen if we do that, but that's not, but it's also not the way the world works. So you have to be, you have to be op open to, about that. And I agree. I think one, one may more think that I think, you know, in a more traditional organization, and I've been in some of those before, I think, you know, you can get the feedback or the comment from a more traditional manager that, you know, well, if I empower the team and give the team decision making, you know, authority, then, you know, what's my job? You know, what 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 am I supposed to do? And I think this is a genuine issue. Uh, and I think the answer is, well, then your job is, you know, back to the basics. OK, what is the purpose? And what are the clear and not just a, 
you know, made up purpose that you can kind of copy and paste. I mean, like a genuine differentiating purpose. What is your dent in the universe? You know, to use a job sort of quote. And you need to be very clear about setting the goals. I think, you know, the the stubborn leaders that you were talking about, Tim, I think the idea is you should be stubborn on the vision. I mean, you know, as, as a leader, you need to have that vision, but you can be flexible in the details. I think it's a, a Bezos quote. I think set, set the why, set the, the, the vision, create the right environment and competencies. That is your job as a modern leader then, you know, increasingly. That is, a, that is a worthy job. That is still a huge job. It doesn't mean you have to take all the decisions yourself. No, I fully agree, Craig. And, and also just to, to add uh, is also that even if, if you have this team that is working really, really hard and so, uh, and, and you have the trust and they feel the trust and everything, but uh, still that you as a leader let them know uh, the good work that they are doing. Uh, it's like send an email or just have a chat with them or whatever. But uh, on a regular basis, uh, just let them uh, see that they are seen also as individuals. Fully agree. And what are your thoughts, Anders? Uh, yeah, lots of thoughts, but a, a, a couple of uh, uh, things um, that I, I, I want to share. First of all, my my goal as a, as a leader, uh, since I, I, I was uh, promoted to manager some 25 years ago, has always been to make myself redundant uh, because I mean that is really my job. I, I miserably fa fail, uh, unfortunately, but but uh, I mean I, I think I'm, I'm not at all afraid of of this uh, self-managed team that that's my dream that the, the team can can you know manage themselves uh so so that's one thing the other thing is this uh, we're in it together uh i think this is extremely important and then the, i've seen some some different examples where this is really really uh, working and happening and other examples where it's not uh maybe because of old uh, hierarchical structures but in 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 that in a modern type, uh, uh, Western type uh, organization, uh, as we say in Sweden, if we're in the same boat, I mean we're in it together. So uh, and that has uh, that creates a culture where where you are including everybody, including the leader. So everybody uh, will take the blame if if it if it fails, and everybody will share the success. Uh, and especially in cases where things are not going. Um, according to plans, which things are every now and then. Uh, it's very, very important not to punish anybody, not to, to start any blame gaming that's his fault or their fault or anything. And, and I think it, it's more of, of, of how you communicate as a leader. Uh, I think there's, there's a, a way that you could totally dis destroy this uh, culture or you could could empower the team by just saying yeah I'm, I'm in it and nobody's to blame we made the decision together okay we ran off the cliff but hey let's get up and get on it uh, and next time we will succeed and to be honest also my experience is an organization that's never failed will not perform very well uh, they will be inefficient and they are will will be extremely afraid of making decisions outside the box they 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 will just stay on the path but organizations that have failed uh, they are much more open to 
try out new things and much more open-minded and they in in my experience are in the long run much more successful and i think also that uh, it's really good comment uh Anders, and i think that uh, just to go a little bit ahead there is also that team members everybody are individuals and everybody has uh, like their own capacity and so forth and as a leader i think it's also um it's important to see those differences and also meet them on where they are so you also can like help up if it's needed on the level where they are at the moment because if they also feel that wow i have my leader together with me and so then they will grow and that that's really what a leader wants, that everybody grows and could do more and more things. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll stay on your theme, Eva. Uh, we'll move on to your question now. <laughs> yeah, my, my question was a little bit more about, um, it's also about the teams, but also how you manage when there are scattered teams. Uh, and for example, when they are both scattered as personalities and roles and also country countries. So um, and, and uh, that's uh, um, much of my experience that I and, and so it is at the moment uh, also that I have my team members are in different countries and uh, as I said, it's both product managers and product owners. But uh, besides that, I also have I'm involved in in other so-called projects. But uh, and since I'm not a, a project uh, leader or project manager, but still I get the overall responsibility. So everything will in the end come back to me anyway. So and that could also be when how to manage all of these kind of different kind of roles and personalities and so to to get all of this together but that is also something that i then thought that a little bit what i just mentioned about that meeting people on the level where they are and just try to emphasize them and just to to empower them and encourage them and, and really and that they also feel that that um, the leader or in this case me that then that we're working together as a team but still um that they also know that i have like the the i will i will have the ownership in the end so they don't don't feel like like we talked a little bit uh, before about if we fail we could fail together but uh, i will take the responsibility of that and when it's success it's really important to just highlight the team and let uh, organization other people in the organization also know about uh, the team effort. It's a beginning. Comments? Uh, we'll start with you if you want, Anders. Yeah, I mean, you, you started with um, talking about distributed teams and, uh, and uh, fragmented uh, both uh, uh, cultural wise and also different countries and, and uh, geography. Uh, I, I think uh, 
my past experience is that it's always an inefficiency to have people spread all over the world. Uh, I happen to work for a quite large Swedish company for many, many years, and we had uh, uh, always people all over the world, um, and I thought it was inefficient. But now, uh, during the pandemic, uh, we realized that it might not be so uh, so bad. It's actually pretty good, but it's very, very important to have set goals. Going back to, to what you said before, uh, Craig, you have to share the, the goals. You have to know where you're going and what the priorities are, uh, communicate every day. I mean, those stand-up meetings are, are uh, that's a gift from heaven uh, because that you can sort out things very, very quickly uh, and, and you can shift focus and you can get the message across. So I, I, I uh, whenever I can, I attend the, the meetings pretty much every day, the, the stand-up meetings. So, uh, so going back to, to that, I, I think that the, the distributed teams, uh, that's something that's here to stay. Uh, what is important, of course, is to have a shared goal, but also that we can communicate very well in English. That, that's my experience. So when you have teams that are not as fluent uh, in, in, in English, then you have to make some kind of local arrangement. So uh, when I had the team, for example, in China, then of course, I mean, they had to, to create some kind of uh, local uh, communication path uh, so that they could also get everybody on board. Uh, otherwise, uh, there's a risk, I think you also mentioned that, Craig, that some people are, are not as, as uh, uh, extrovert and, and maybe are afraid to speak up in, in, in larger groups. Uh, you want to reach them too. So, but, but of course, I mean, you, are, you have to plan accordingly. It, it's not, it, it would have been easier to have everybody in the same room in the same, uh, you know, city at the same office. Craig, do you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I fully, I fully recognize the situation that Eva is outlining. I had distributed teams and, and geographically, culturally, I've also been in a situation where I was the young manager for a, a group with a relatively high age, and then I got older, and then I was the kind of old manager for a bunch of, you know, young people. So, I mean, I think in this distributed age, uh, and and one one thing we've done a lot with the with the pandemic situation is that when it comes to it's a lot about you know setting the ways of working again back to the servant leadership so what what we've done a lot is set some basic principles for how we interact for example regardless of where you are and like right now i've got people in finland india sweden and poland so we have our cameras on in the meetings unless there's an exceptional reason not to do it it's a set that expectation it felt a little bit weird in the beginning and people were kind of tricking themselves out saying you know do I look okay but I think once we got used to it, it's like yeah this makes it much more personal it's still not the same as being face to face but it's it's kind of the next best thing so it's sort of setting those ways of working setting those sort of unwritten rules and getting those um, you know lift those things make them explicit I think is a you know a, a key factor to making these distributed teams work another thing is also about you know the working hours in, in our in Poland we have uh, a lot of people that start work really early and then they like to leave by say 3 4 o'clock and that's you know that's works out well for them then we have to adjust our team working hours and say okay we contact contact each other mostly between 9 and 3 30. it's just about making those things obvious and you know uh, transparent i think that helps a lot we found that helps a lot when it comes to these distributed teams having different cultures and different personalities
And also when you have these kind of uh, scattered streams in, in different countries and so well, and I also have like it's in India and Czech and in Finland and Sweden and Norway and, and so. So there are like some differences, of course, regarding the, the, the time, of course. Uh, but I also think that it's uh, it's important for the team also to know that you try to make yourself available and that you uh, that they are able to contact. It's it's okay to contact even though maybe I'm not like replying uh, in a second. But but still, so you also make them feel comfortable that they they know that they can always come to me whenever. I might contradict you a little bit, Craig, and I, and I actually don't think I don't think of it this way, but I think trying to come up with the water cooler moments and those kinds of things that that are not happening because of distances. And so I I actually and I've been reading and, and looking at this. They're saying uh, one thing to do is one, try to have one on one calls and make people turn the screens off and make them phone calls. Not 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 screen calls. Don't sit in front of your screen because you have a fundamentally different kind of conversation. So try to kind of create more casual conversations. And that's not saying when you're having your stand up cameras on, when you're having your planning sessions, cameras on. You, you, yeah, you need to see each other. You need to see how people are reacting. But sometimes, you know, if somebody needs to talk maybe a little bit more emotionally. They don't want to feel like the the microscope is on them because like if even if you're in a meeting room you're not looking at everybody at once right you're looking at one person and so we're missing some of those human cues and so so um you know i think as a manager trying to more sort of short check-ins and stuff to try and create that kind of thing and encourage it amongst the team members but um yeah it's 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 um it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to get that that happening i think for like when you know what the work is and you know what you got to do remote is great but it's when you want to like come together on goals and do plan and think of big things it's you know it's it's hard so uh so i think you're trying to have those side conversations so that when you walk into those bigger conversations people are feeling uh, more comfortable with each other <laughs> Yeah. I'm not really on your page there, actually, because I think that, uh, OK, phone call is fine as well and, and so forth uh, and not having the camera on and, and so. But uh, what I have noticed now since we have had this now pandemic and everything that and uh, maybe when you are at the office, you are quite uh, dressed and everything. But now when everybody has been working from home, it's a little, little bit more casual and so. And, and um, if I go to myself, I think also that at some occasions I, uh, you know, I can have like a hoodie on or so. So you like downsize yourself because then you really get people to talk because you are showing that, okay, uh, I have a bad hair day. I have a, I don't have to like be, in a certain way the whole time because then and also when you get people to feel comfortable and so then you really I as uh, that's only my experience but I I feel then that I really get out the the most and the best of people and that they really open up and, and really contribute actually yeah I think if I could add something I think um 
I mean, this thing with cameras, just an example, I think what we chose to do was to have it on in a certain meeting, but in other meetings, we, we don't have to have it on. So I think there needs to be some flexibility there. And as a leader, you need to kind of, you know, play the piano a little bit in terms of knowing, you know, when to push for it and when to let it go. And I, I'm a big hoodie guy myself. So I, you know, turn up a lot when I'm working from home in hoodies. I have a favorite hoodie. It works amazing. But I think definitely there's some authenticity that you need to bring. Um, we talked about making mistakes uh, earlier and sort of being transparent as a leader as well and showing when you're not confident about something. And I think the the camera thing was just more an example of when we've talked about ways of working and that was what we decided as a team in certain meetings. And in other meetings, we have it off and it, it works really well for us to kind of get this, you know, to cross these cultural divides. Right. I've been reading papers. Uh, Stanford University has been publishing stuff on Zoom fatigue and what's going on with teams and, and ways to, uh, you know, combat that. Um, and so, that you know, these ideas aren't mine. I'm not taking credit. I, I can take the blame, I guess. But but I, I do think there are some times when I was like, I need to have a special conversation with somebody and it just works better. Uh, as a phone call, and I even say that to them, go, go, let's take a walk, literally get out of your, let's go get on your phone and let's talk this because it's a different different way of, because you get so locked into your little room, your computer, wherever you are, and and it's, um, you want to break, you want to break that just the way you would in a physical office. You'd move into a meeting room, you'd go outside, you'd be in the break room, wherever. So that's all. I'm not, I, I, no, that was really interesting conversation. Good to hear a few different opinions there as well. Um, and we'll stay with you, Tim, as well for, for the last question of the day. Yeah, uh, do you want to introduce it? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, I was thinking like tip for leaders rather than uh, more of these uh, uh, things. And, and it sort of, it goes right in line with what we're talking about, though, what everybody's been talking about. And um, I, I've a few years ago stumbled upon something um, uh, as a, it's a great concept for communicating. I think it's a great concept for community, communicating with individual team members, but also up and down an organization and actually even with my spouse and my kids. It's, it's a useful thing. And, it, and the idea is called radical candor. And it was, um, it, it's a framework for something that I think we kind of know, but it provided this really simple framework. And it's a woman named Kim Scott has uh, developed it. If you Google her or go onto YouTube, you can see a little five minute video that'll do a much better job than I am of probably describing it. But it it comes down to two two axes or two ideas. One is, uh, one is um, uh, personal caring. Do you care about the people? And, and generally we all care about the people, but personal caring, demonstrating that and um, challenging people directly. And, uh, and so, uh, and so you have these sort of two axes that you, you, you think about. And of course, what you want to do is you want to personally care, show that care and challenge people uh, directly to help move, move conversations along. And that's, that's, that's radical candor. I think it's really, I think the way I think about explaining it is actually talking about the other boxes that, you know, if you draw those two axes, you get the nice four quadrant business map that we all love. Um, and so radical candors in that upper right box. And then if you think about like uh, low caring, but challenging, that sort of 
for lack of a better term, asshole behavior, right? That's being obnoxious. And I think a lot of young managers, if we go back to this, that that's like the manager, this is my way or the highway, I'm gonna say the smart thing. And, and, and you know, when they come in uh, and and they don't show a lot of care, maybe they don't, they don't care. And so immediately when people are confronted like that, you wanna get feedback, they turn off, right? They're offended, they're defensive, they're, so, so, so we all can come up with that and those examples. Um, and, and then I think if you go sort of uh, across to sort of where you're not showing care and you're not even challenging directly, you're sort of being passive aggressive, manipulative insincerity, right? So uh, the base, the, the one I love is when you tell two kids who are fighting, okay, say you're sorry to each other. They both know neither of them are sorry. They, I mean, they don't care, right? So that's just a, that's just a waste of breath and it's not, and it's not helping the situation. Um, the other quadrant, which I've I've actually found myself in, and I've found myself kind of having to get out of for other managers, is um, where people show a lot of care, but they 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 actually don't speak their mind, and they don't, you know, they don't they don't say the hard things, and that's sort of ruinous empathy, it's called. And 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 when people are are in that, then maybe they want to they they want to be empathetic, they want to be seen as light. And when they and when they when you have those sorts of conversations, you end up often where you have a person that you have a really hard conversation with, but it's built up over time. They've not gotten feedback. There's been no course correction. You know, maybe it happens at the evaluation point at the end of the year, and then they're like. Why didn't you tell me last year? Or I thought I was doing a really good job. I, I had a situation where a guy had done some training videos and 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 his manager was not telling him the scripts weren't good. And then the videos get delivered and we're like, we're not going to ship these. We're not going to show these. And then he's, you know, he's put all his work in and he's like, but, but you, you saw this all the way. It's like, yeah, you know, but I was hinting. It's like, ugh. So, so I think that, the, the real tip is to have this uh, radical candor. Sh you have to show care. If you don't show care, then nothing will be taken. And, and that's the first place to start. Show interest, not just be engaged, but be interested in, in people and, and their performance. And then, and then, uh, and then, and then challenge them. And, and so here's an example, you know, that comes out. A guy works really hard to do a presentation He's showing something off, and then he comes in, and the presentation doesn't go so well. But it's and, and maybe it's because he's not clear when he's articulating things, or he hasn't lined the goals up. You could say, "Well, that went horribly," or you know, "You got to get your goals lined up." That would be useful, but maybe not so heard. But if you say, "I know you've done your homework. I can see you really care about this. How can I help you next time so that this thing gets sold?" You know, do, do you want some presentation training? Do you uh, do we need to go through something else? You know, those are the kinds of conversations. And and it doesn't have to just be negative feedback or, or encouragement. It can be positive feedback. Oh, you did a great job on this. I saw, you know, do more of that thing that you're doing so well. So I, I've, I've, I, I like this little cue card and I and I can even play back conversations I've had. And I say, oh, I was I, I wasn't clear or maybe you're having a conversation and you think you're being challenging and it's not being heard. So listen in on that. So it's like, oh, you were ooming and eyeing when you spoke. 
oh yeah, yeah, but wasn't that great? It's like, no, you need to hear me I, because I want you to succeed. When you um and ah, you sound stupid, you know? But it, now he's, you know, I said, I care that you succeed. That person hears that, but I want to, I want, I want to give you this tip. So I, I used, to, I, this is just my one little takeaway. And if you think about it, you can go up the organization. You can use it with your kids. Um, and I, and I, I go Google Kim Scott and and watch five minutes of her video. And um, it's just a, it's a very aha. Yeah, this I get it, and I I've known this, but this is a really good way to think about it. So that's my two cents. And then, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's my two cents on on that. And maybe people have things they want to add or subtract from them. All ears. I, I think it, it's really good and I think also it's it's everything is valid and I think that uh, um, also that we might have talked about it quite a lot but in different wordings uh, but but um, just uh, like you said about this uh, to listen in and so and like we say in Sweden you need to have the the fingertop feeling about things how to and that is uh, going back to having a balance when you are uh, when you're dealing with the different kind of personalities also. Craig, do you okay. want to jump in? Or Anders, sorry? Yeah, you okay. Okay, uh, just just quick comment. Uh, I, I think this is uh, this is uh, definitely very very important. But uh, in, in general, different cultures have have different um, uh, sort of. Um, uh, attitudes towards criticism and, and in Sweden uh, since I've been working a lot in North America also criticism in Sweden is a negative word whereas in our culture it's actually a positive word so deliberate criticism or feedback is is difficult but you have to do it both ways so um, over the years of uh, my, my philosophy is start with the good uh, good things uh, positive reinforcement uh, I've stolen this from the reinforcement uh, learning that is so popular in, in AI in those days uh, and then uh, you have to uh, let them know that uh, some areas they're not good at, they have to fix. Some areas they're not good at, and forget it. They will never be good, and that's not uh, and that's not important. Uh, but but uh, at least I've been more mostly successful in in areas where I can start on you know the positive side, and then we say okay, we want to improve. Uh, and I agree with you, Tim. I mean, how can we do this together? We we want to be successful, so. Yeah, I can also echo. I think I, I recognize that definitely as a leader, and also having received you know different kinds of feedback working you know in different countries. Um, I think it ties in really nicely to the servant leadership model, where your kind of your mindset is to help the person grow. So to do that, you have to actually genuinely care. But I think it's a good reminder that you, you can care long term, and that requires you know sometimes as you put it, Tim, a, a course adjustment. So I think definitely I can think of some conversations where Craig, were you really clear about that you, there was a gap between what you saw and the expectations? So I think it's a super good reminder for for any kind of leader. Just uh, I just want to like tell you a little bit a story uh, regarding this uh, culture differences. <clears throat> uh, some years ago, uh, since I you know uh, work with the people in India as well. Um, 
uh, and have uh, one some team members there and and they there were this uh, one woman and uh, and they are quite hierarchic they the hierarchy are quite important for them so they are really like okay i'm waiting for what you are going to to say and and you what i'm de the decision and so forth <clears throat> and one uh, woman, she came to Sweden and uh, I met her a couple of times and then I was thinking that, okay, how do I want to get the best out of her? How could I like come more closer to her uh, and, and get some more out of her? Uh, because I, I really saw the potential and capacity that she had. Uh, so um, in the last time I met her in Sweden, I actually when when we met, I, I hugged her like many uh, in Sweden do, but they are mere, more like uh, res resistant to that. So but I hugged her and, and she she was like, oh, oh, but she did that. And after that, we have the the cooperation is fantastic. And, and she does she it was like turning her hand around. It was like I, I get so much out of her and she really feels that I see her. So, um, so you, you have to be a little bit street smart sometimes also to try to figure out how can I meet this person? I think that's a, a great story to finish on, Eva. So thank you. Um, so we'll leave it there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Tim, Craig, Eva and Anders. Uh, thanks for joining me and providing your insights into the topic. And thanks to all the listeners as well for listening. Um, if you'd like to get involved in any of the upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at daniel.myshek at evolution-nordics.com. And we'll see you next time.